פחות מחמש דקות אחרי שאני מסיים את שיחת הוועידה, הגעתי אליה לגמרי מהוסס, אבל הפרזנטציה עברה מצוין. ואפילו גיורא פירקן. The kitten is dying. This morning she's certain of it, almost certain. After it overcame its terror of being separated from the other furry bulls in the grocer's boy's basket, it had played contentedly in her room, leaping from square to square of sunlight in the carpet, stalking flies, its eyes bright, its pointed ears twitching, rolling over and over its two large paws, lunging up at the tasseled end of the braided tie back that holds the curtains, a joyful flash of orange. But lately it has been listless, crouched in a corner, not able to make the jump into the hat box that she lined for it with scraps of fabric. It has stopped making its comical, exaggerated attempts to groom itself, and it doesn't startle, not even when the wind comes down the chimney and makes a fire snap to attention like a flag. Now it is crouched in the corner, eyes sunken. She picks up a half-open horse chestnut from her desk, slips a gleaming mahogany nut from its spiked husk. rolls it across the floor. The kitten doesn't acknowledge it, doesn't even flinch. She draws her shawl more tightly around her shoulders. For all that the September day is mild, she has two pairs of stockings on and a hot water bottle at her back. She is still chilly. I'm living under the draft from the wings of a great black bird, she thinks, who is circling, circling, deciding whether or not to settle. And I am so frightened that he'll settle on me. Go to blazes, she says aloud. Go to blazes. She ignores a glass of cold, greasy milk that Ida and Jack have conspired to declare she must drink every mid-morning and mid-afternoon, reaches past it for a silver tin of cigarettes instead, lights one, the defiant scratch and phosphorus flare of the match. With a smoke, she draws a made-up sigil in the air. Then she flicks a dead matchstick in the direction of the fire, but it falls short. She gets up to retrieve it and drop it in, retrieves a horse chestnut too. kneels and nudges it at the kitten's paw, but the creature will not be provoked into batting at it. She scoops it up and sits back down. It is trembling under its fur. I knew this would happen, she thinks. Why did you want to go back to Catherine Mansfield in Hampstead back in 1918? Over Christmas, I was reading and reading and reading Catherine Mansfield because it's her centenary. I reread all of her stories, I reread her journals, her letters, I reread Claire Harmon's 
beautiful new book, All Sorts of Lives. And there's a story that I love of Chekhov's that she also quotes. It's the time where Chekhov says to Korolenko, the journalist, he's saying, do you know how I write my short stories? And Chekhov just picks up an ashtray from the desk and he says, you know, here's how. And he says, tomorrow I'll give you a story based on this ashtray. And he does. And Korolenko writes that it seems that then and there this magical transformation of the ashtray occurred. It suddenly became not just a quotidian object, but almost like this portal into a story for Chekhov. And I think Catherine Mansfield, there's something very similar that happens with her. In her biography, Claire Harmon puts it beautifully. She says that it's not that she takes something from real life and makes a story of it, but she finds the story in something that already exists in real life. And Virginia Woolf says a similar thing of Mansfield. She says, sometimes you feel that with Mansfield, all she has to do is throw a ring of words around it. Um, and it's caught it's there and so there's something as well the thing that I love about Mansfield is she's such a musical writer you know she is a writer and she was she was a very accomplished musician herself that's the way that I think of writing you know I learned Suzuki violin from when I was about four and Suzuki violin is the method of music where you listen and you repeat you you don't learn to read music it's all about listening and tuning in and so I had this idea that it might be possible to tune in to Catherine Mansfield and tune into her diaries and tune into her world and write a story and this story as I've written it I think it's as close to a 50-50 blend as I could get between Mansfield's words and mine and there's this one incident in her diaries where the kitten dies very minor incident but from that I thought okay that's my that's my Chekhov's ashtray this is going to be my portal into Mansfield and into her life and when the kitten dies in her diaries approximately it's when she herself was given the diagnosis of tuberculosis it was confirmed she started coughing blood she had been she'd been in away in, in France and she'd started coughing blood and and she got back home and she was told two things actually she was told that um she did have this venereal disease that had progressed and she told that she did have a fatal case of tuberculosis but she was told that she could potentially be cured but it would mean going away for two or three years not reading not writing you know nothing stimulating and she decided no she decided she would rather die than not be able to read and not be able to write Virginia Woolf writes in her diaries of going to visit Mansfield and she talks of the way Mansfield was and Mansfield was not behaving as someone who was ill. (laughs) She was denying the greasy glass of milk. Mansfield has been told, you are going to die. She decides not to accept that reality. She decides, no, I'm going to write the things that I need to write. I'm going to live. I'm going to carry on reading and writing and living. You know, Mansfield felt such an affinity for Chekhov. She talks, she sees Chekhov in her dreams. She talks to him. She, you know, writes to him. She was accused of plagiarising some of his stories, but I see it as more her blending with him. Her stories are very much in conversation with his. And so I thought it might be interesting to see if I could tune into her and if I could do that seamlessly enough that the story works for someone who is intimately familiar with her diaries and her work, but also that even if you don't know her work, it works, you know, qua story or it works not seeing where the joins are. Absolutely. It's something that you've achieved brilliantly. Thank you. I mean, it was very amusing when there were a couple of moments that you commented on that you liked. And I thought, oh, that's me. <laughs> that's not KM <laughs> as I think of her. But yeah, that became the trick. Tell us a bit about the process. How did you line your words up against hers or interweave them? First of all, I chose that the story was going to be the life and death of this kitten. So that was 
my unity of time. <laughs> that was my that was my prism. And so I knew that I had to fit into this story of the death of the kitten, the death and life really of Catherine Mansfield herself. And the timeline works, or it's true to life, that around the same time that this kitten died, she was having this diagnosis. So I kept it as biographically accurate as I could. And then I combed through all of her journals and diaries and letters for the particular details. And Wolf as well, because she had such a close collaboration with Wolf. Because certain phrases are just taken like the snap of the fire or, or the duck. Yeah, I have phrases and phrases of them where she talks about a smell of onions and chopped bones in the house as usual. And you thought, I'll have that. I'll have that, yeah. Or, you know, the view from the window is simply superb, the pale sky and the half-bare trees. So beautiful it might be the country, Russian country as I see it. Or she says that for lunch they have a delicate, harmless whiting. Is it to be in a pate or a mousse? Or, you know, lunch is a baked egg, apricots and cream, cheese straws. Because part of it, it's a technical... Illusion, really, because if you do it too much, it just becomes pastiche. Mm. But you need to do it just enough. So I started combing for physical details and building my world from there. The house that she lived in, and that house in Hampstead, you can go and see it. It's just on the edge of Hampstead Heath. And so I, I went to see it, <laughs> to sort of you know stand in front of it and sort of look. And I looked online at all of the estate agents' listings that are available, and it's listed, which is useful because if something is you know grade two listed, you have very meticulous architectural descriptions of the house and the layout of it and and so I suppose it was a slow process of imagining myself into the world to the extent that I felt that I knew it that I'd, I'd absorbed it enough that when I come to write you know she sits down at her desk I know instinctively okay I know what she's got on her desk I know that she has her cigarette in a silver tin she will reach for her cigarette in a silver tin she will strike with a match rather than a lighter you know I know enough that um the fiction can start to leap between the facts. And it's also a question of that time, isn't it? Because in 1918, Catherine Mansfield is in some sense already Catherine Mansfield, but yet not really at all. Yes, exactly. She's just got married to her husband, John Middleton Murray, but he is not yet the critic. By the end of the story, he takes on the editorship of this prestigious magazine, but he is not yet that. And she still feels that there are all these stories that she is yet to write. And so a sort of... A magical thinking happens, you know, there's a sort of pivoting in time. It's almost as if, from our perspective, we can flash through time like a sort of Rolodex set of cards. And all her stories, she has written them. It's just that she is yet to write them. And in the moment of my story, this magical thing happens where she knows that she is yet to write them. You know, the stories are written. It's just she's yet to do it. And so I sort of feel that the kind of hair is raising the back of my neck as I think that, because then what I do is I, I come from my perspective in time, I sort of tune in very acutely to hers and I feel, Catherine, I know that you're yet to write them. And it's right. The decisions that you're making are the right decisions because they do lead to all of these stories. And Because here they are. I'm willing you on. Here they are. Yeah. And they are yet yeah. to come. And you don't know it, but I know it. And you're right. And it does do that thing that fiction can do, which feels like it's a sort of touching of psyches. Like Catherine Mansfield never imagined me, but I read her work and I read her journals and I know that I feel this affinity with her. And W.S. Graham, he would call it this constructed space, you know, this public place achieved against all the private odds. Part of the thing that I wanted to do was to create this, this space in which I can momentarily contra all physics, contra all the laws of space and time as we live them in our quotidian lives. I can 
blend touch with her. Because that's what Catherine Mansfield says herself. She writes it about the duck. Somehow, as she writes about the duck, somehow oh, I am one. Yes. So is, that, is that it? You are Catherine Mansfield. Yeah, it's true. It's that sort of mystic. Um, She is a mystic. You know, she's a sort of modern day mystic in her diaries and her writings. And she's got a letter to Wolf where she says, one ought to merge into things. One of the greatest pieces on the writing of fiction is um, Henry James's great essay, The Art of Fiction. He says, again, we're back to Chekhov's ashtray. A writer must be someone on whom nothing is lost. For a true writer, they can convert even the very pulses of the air into feeling. He has the image of a spider's web and that a writer's consciousness, not always because one cannot live like that. We need to retreat into ourselves. Otherwise, we couldn't live. We can do anything. But at certain moments, you can sort of expand your consciousness to the very auric limits of yourself and you can touch and take in other things other people other consciousnesses other ways of being and Mansfield very much that's how she lives that's how she writes she has this ardent desire to be more than the narrow sum of quotidian experience that is allowed her by the travails of her body by the limitations of her body by the limitations of her gender of her place and her time what does Catherine Mansfield back in 1918 have to tell us right here, right now in the 21st century? I think that she's she's so important in modernism and quite often she's not considered as important by those high practitioners of modernism because she was a woman, because she was a New Zealander, but because she was funny. <laughs> Still, she's so important in the way that we see what the short story can do. You read her and it's astonishing how alive her journals still seem how alive her writing still is. I wonder if there's something also about that refusal, mm. that refusal to be bound by her diagnosis, mm -hmm. by her gender, by the position she is in her life, whether that's something that speaks to us all the more powerfully. I think so. And I think it sort of takes your breath away. And it also shows you there are these different ways of doing it. It emboldens you as a writer. I think that is maybe the great gift of, of Mansfield. My name is Michael Dovacor. My story is Invitation. Here is a list of the things preferred left at our flat. A ragged London Library membership card. A dead biro. A cock ring. Two euros an orange scarf, a Breton t-shirt sagging at the collar, a folded ticket to Sweeney Todd. While we were all together, this pile lived on the bedside table with my pants and postcards. After us two got the third final message, we needed to move his traces somewhere less visible. So we put those last effects in the cupboard under the built-in bookcase with the letters to previous tenants or the ones that should have been directed to our landlord's new address. Those things still smell of him even now, a scent that is herbal and deeply green, but the beginning is harder to grasp. Where did it start? Where did it come from? I have been thinking a lot about the fact that I'm in my late 30s and you know, a number of us have been married for a few years now and I guess we all have relationships that from the outside look fairly conventional and I've wondered what it might be like to explore in fiction 
a relationship that didn't have those sorts of shapes and forms to kind of think about how one might represent that in a story that has a slightly different shape to it too. This story is quite fragmented, it refuses to begin in the way that you want it to begin, it doesn't end in the way that you want it to end, it circles around the middle quite a few times, so a lot of gaps. I wanted that to maybe speak to this idea that different shaped relationships might be presented in different shaped ways on the page. Does your narrator's reluctance to begin, to begin straightforwardly, does that mirror any kind of reluctance you felt yourself? I think I had a reluctance to impose a kind of moral viewpoint on this relationship between three people and a reluctance to suggest that the relationship between us two is in some way flawed. Because one of the things about the story that's very striking is it's really very rude. Were you trying to épater les bourgeois? That's very funny. I don't think I did think about shock or about rudeness. I suppose that maybe that's not entirely true. I suppose I was aware of there being a frankness to the descriptions of sex, but I wanted that to also live alongside the narrator's tenderness and the kind of boring stuff that goes on in the narrator's life. So I kind of wanted that frankness to exist as part of giving a full sense of this experience. Mm, absolutely. But I mean, the bourgeois are there being shocked, aren't they? There's the postman, the schoolgirls, the Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, you're right. There is a kind of, a kind of external world that is in some ways judgmental about this arrangement of situations that seems hard to fathom. Those examples of shock that are quite fleeting and actually feel quite not especially well thought through. They're quite knee-jerk and immediate. So that kind of reactionary response versus what the reader encounters in the story, which is a much fuller and much more complicated representation of what's actually going on. You might think that a pick-up on the night bus, this scandalous threesome, would be all about the physical. But this one is certain there's something more to it. Absolutely. I did really want to spend time thinking about Kind of mystical connection. I suppose that's why there's like a reference to that uh, Christian artifact in the middle of the story, because I didn't want it just to be about the corporeal and about lust, although that is there. I did want there to be some exploration of the kind of unnameable stuff that attracts us to people sometimes, um, and that we often can't really get our heads around long after that thing has happened. Yeah, I did want that sense of the numinous and the intangible to be part of the, the love story between these two characters. Because it is a love story, isn't it? It is very much so. It is. And I think it's a love story in some ways actually predominantly about the us two figures in the sense that they are the ones that are kind of standing at the end after the potentially tumultuous situation. They're still together in awe of what they've been able to do and what they've come to together. So I think there is definitely a feeling of increased intimacy between the us two characters at the end of the narrative. I am Adora Raji and my story is titled The Proper Way to Cook or Ha. A thin slice of the August morning sun slants through the curtain as I reach for my phone. It is already 8.20am, but there's no reason to hurry. Eventually, I sit up 
put on my blue rubber slippers, and attend to stand. My legs are not what they used to be. Placing my hands firmly beside me, I heave myself upright, put my phone into my pyjama pocket, and take slow, steady steps into the backyard. I pull down my pyjamas and shoot a straight piece into the base of the guava tree. I open the wooden box beside the goat's pen and take out the sacks of yam peels and forage. I fill two feeding troughs with yam peels and two with forage, unhook the lash and place them inside the pen. As they jostle and push for their breakfast, I count all 16 goats. Their urgency is sparks a craving that has been building in me for several days. It is the middle of August, and some days are heavier than others. I toss the sacks back into the wooden box, slam it shut, and head to the kitchen. So what got you started on the proper way to cook oha? I got started on this story because of the experiences of my maternal grandparents. They had experienced the Nigerian Civil War, and I observed that whenever they tell stories about the war, it seems to me as if it's a missing piece of a giant puzzle, a gap or a hole that can never really be filled. And then at the time I started writing the story, I thought to myself, what better way to represent this piece of a missing puzzle than with the image of a missing person? Our protagonist is trying to understand what had happened to his friend, and in that way, he navigates memory, he navigates nostalgia, he navigates loss. And I felt that was the way they told the story to me. And I could also relate that sort of emotions back to the reader. Food itself, cooking itself, I mean, is an art. And there are so many ways we come about this art form. Recipes handed down to us from generation to generation and how we are able to infuse this art of cooking in a way that it not only relieves us of a lot of stress and tension, but also it's the ultimate sensory experience of enjoying your food. is an art form of its own. As a young woman living in Nigeria now, does the Biafran War seem very remote? The Biafran War doesn't seem remote to me. No, <laughs> no, no. I have lived in the East for a considerable length of time. And the war feels like a present continuous tense, not just here, but in other sections of the country that I have lived into. The issues raised by the war at that time still remains today. It's, it's, uh, it's shocking. There is no closure. There is no ending. It's like a circle. And so... You have so many issues of um, ethnic bigotry, tribal violence, and then you have a situation where there's an inadequate allocation of resources to certain sections of the country, which, you know, it hasn't been resolved. It's just there. It's not something we can wish away. It's staring at us in the face every day, or it's staring at me in the face every day, too. It's not a remote thing. Not at all. When was the last time you cooked Oha soup? The last time I cooked Oha soup... I think probably four months ago. It wasn't a special occasion per se. I had this craving for the soup at that point and I (laughs) thoroughly enjoyed it. Here's Serena Cat with her graphic story Submerged, 
though you'll have to imagine the pictures. I take my time as I arrive, staring unfocused at the horizon. A man walks to the steps, as if to walk down, but he hesitates at the top. I wonder if he's afraid. He walks back, looks in at me, and half smiles. What a shame he was afraid to go down. It is such a glorious evening. I walk to the steps and breathe, taking in the view. On days like today, I want to sink below the surface, submerge before we become submerged. How did you get started on Submerge? What was the spark? It was very loosely based on a personal experience. I think I wrote the very first draft a couple of years ago. It was around the time of Sarah Everard being abducted. So I had worked very close to where she was taken. And that was my route home, walking home or cycling home. And so it really hit home. Literally in her footsteps. Yeah. I think it made me suddenly very aware that there was something to be afraid of. And I think before I'd never felt afraid as a woman walking around. Because sadly, it's all too common an experience. Is it something that you've talked about with your friends, with your family? Is it a sort of shared thing? Yeah, more so with friends, although I have had interesting conversations with family as well. And I don't think there's a single woman that I know who doesn't have one or several stories to tell, actually. It's also the sort of not knowing whether or not you are in danger, the second guessing, which I think is also what I was really wanting to pull at in Submerge. The feeling being in your head and you don't know until it's too late whether or not there actually is a danger. Mm. If people haven't read the story already, there's a woman walking on a beach, there's a man walking on a beach, and the story is about what happens in her head, outside her, What what's really going on. So it's the not quite knowing actually what's going on, because essentially it's told from her perspective and right up until the end, you know, is there something going on? Is there not something going on? Probably, but could also not be. Most of the story is told in subtle greys, but you've picked out details in purple, orange and yellow. What's the thinking behind that palette? The orange of the which I used to depict the man's coat was the first colour that I landed on. And then I was just looking for something on the colour wheel that matched very well with that for the woman so that we had these kind of opposites in a way that sort of spoke to each other visually. And the orange is, again, trying to hint at a sense of danger, but it's not the glaring red or very, very bright colour that you might normally associate with it. It's slightly muted into the orange to hint, but to also not give a full answer. Maybe he's just wearing a waterproof. Well, yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The yellow colour is just used to describe moments when she's in her imagination in an earlier part of the story where her imagination is not connected to fear or anything going on with the man it's more about her being in this landscape and drinking it in and wanting to find some kind of escape and the yellow's there to really show that we're entering into her imagination. You say you started working on this around the time that Sarah Everard case was in the news. We're five years on from the arrest of Harvey Weinstein with the backlash against Me Too in full swing. Are stories like Submerged more important than ever? Yeah, I think so. The more that these stories are allowed to be spoken about, the more nuance can start to be uncovered. For me, anyway, it's about starting to see the different layers where these things exist that haven't been spoken about before. Do you think those conversations are now more possible? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly that. 
I think also that some of my friends had that sense or that feeling much more before I did. I think it kind of came to me quite late. Just because of the accident, something had happened to them before? I suppose so. Or perhaps also where they grew up, how they grew up. You know, I grew up in a very, very comfortable, sheltered little island on the Isle of Wight. And it felt much safer than, let's say, growing up in a city. So perhaps I wasn't as streetwise as some of my friends as well. And it's something that I learnt much later to know what those signals were that I should be looking out for. Do you think that stories like Submerged can make a difference, can open up a space for these kind of conversations? I really hope so. I'm always interested in my work in having conversations with people from all sides of the conversation. And I, in this conversation, I always think it's very important for people that aren't women also to understand that feeling, that emotive side of these experiences. For me, that's the thing that I'm interested in. Has it happened again? No, it hasn't. But I'm much more aware these days of just the feeling of if it's night time, which road am I going to choose to walk home? Do I feel safe or not? I'm definitely someone who's always led by their feeling anyway. And so I think if I'd had those feelings before, I would have acted on them. But I just had a fundamental feeling of safety most of the time. And I don't know that that's as concrete anymore. So it's not happened. But the feeling and the second guessing, I guess, sometimes is there. That's a loss of some sort, isn't it? That's a loss that you now have to experience for however long it lasts. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's a really good way of seeing it, actually, yeah. The sense of freedom, the sense of openness that's been taken away from you. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask a couple of questions and then teeter up to the possibility, is this something that might have happened to you? Mm -hmm. But then you just say, okay, well, the way I started was, this is something that happened to me. I was wondering if you find it difficult to talk about or it's just so the common or garden so such an ordinary experience among your friends and family that yeah. that's just how it is it's a very good question yeah I don't find it particularly hard to talk about no not really because yeah I think that's a good way of saying it. it does feel quite common and ordinary and I suppose the act of turning it into a story that's then told and that I spend a lot of time drawing and looking at and thinking about how to represent it makes it into something that isn't ordinary or is perhaps but it has made me think about it in more depth Do you feel safer as a result of this story? That's a very good question, Richard. I don't know the answer to that, (laughs) honestly. (laughs) Has writing about it, has drawing it, has seeing it in this structured way, has that given you ownership over it in some way? Yeah, I would say definitely so. And I think it has made it not stay stuck inside of me. I don't have to, I'm not mulling on it. And I, cause I kind of wrote it very quickly after the experience had happened as well. So that in itself was quite cathartic. Now coming back to it a bit later and then really thinking about how to visualise it, it's maybe let that experience come full circle and it just doesn't feel like it's in me anymore, which feels healthy. And here's Edgar Kerrett with the opening of his story Point of No Return in Hebrew, followed by the translator Jessica Cohen with her version in English. פחות מחמש דקות אחרי שאני מסיים את שיחת הוועידה, רינת ניגשת אליי ואומרת שהיא רוצה לדבר איתי על משהו. אני אומר לה שבטח, לדבר זה טוב. אני עדיין מוצף אנדרנלין משיחת הוועידה. הגעתי אליה לגמרי מהוסס, אבל הפרזנטציה עברה מצוין. ואפילו גיורא פרגן, ואמר שמבחינתו... Five minutes after I finish the conference call, Rinat comes over and says she wants to talk. I tell her, sure, it's good to talk. I'm still on an adrenaline rush from the call. I was very uncertain going in, but my presentation was flawless. 
Even Giora was supportive and said that as far as he was concerned, we were good to go. Renata and I sit down in the kitchen. We usually have these talks in the living room, but the cleaner is here today, and he's mopping the floors. Renat gives me a sad look, which I find somewhat reassuring. If it had been an angry look, I would have known I was about to get raked over the coals. But a sad look could just be a fight with one of her sanctimonious sisters, or an update on some distant relative who had shingles. Okay, I say in my most accepting voice. What did you want to talk about? That was Jessica Cohen reading from her translation of Edgar Kerrett's story, Point of No Return. It's something of a mystery how Point of No Return is unmistakably an Edgar Kerrett story, even in English, despite the unnerving fact that Jessica's version contains none of the actual words in Hebrew that Edgar wrote. So when he spoke down the line from Tel Aviv, I asked him what it was about this story in English that he hadn't actually written a single word of that makes it so clearly a story by Edgar Kerrett. The more I've been working with translators, I totally understand that, you know, languages are not containers that you can move an idea from a language to a language and it will keep the same shape. The translators are collaborators. So whenever a story is translated, I can feel the personality of the translators. You know, in my life, I worked with three or four different translators and sometimes I can read a sentence and I can recognize the translation because it's a slightly more cynical than the original or slightly more humane than the original. And you can feel that the other person's side. In the end, when you write, you try to translate or interpret emotions to situations or to words, you know. This act of translation or interpretation also uh, occurs when I write in Hebrew. When I write stories in Hebrew, it's not as if I say, oh, I wrote it the way that I saw it or felt it. There's always a gap. So translation is just another gap. I was wondering if the thing that makes it an Edgar Carrot story is the moment, the moment when you flip it in some sense, when you pull the rug out from under the reader. It's very difficult for me to see my writing from an exterior point, but there is a situation that it's not the center of the story, but you have this guy that discovers that his wife is having an affair with the, the cleaner of the house who is African. So I think that... For me, those moments where there is something that is totally legitimate, you know, everybody is allowed to be angry at the lover of their partner, but at the same time also puts into it, I don't know, years of colonialism and racial tensions. I think that for me, these are the moments that I look for in my writing, the moments in which ambiguity is inherent. So there is something that I like. It's this kind of place where you really identify with people and at the same time, you are horrified from them, you know, because I think that this is a good way to put us in some kind of a reflexive point. I think that at least for me, most of the time when I live my life, I think that my life is Star Wars and I'm Luke Skywalker and everybody who wants to take my parking or, you know, argues with me about anything, he's like from the dark side, you know? <laughs> and, and when I write stories, many times I like to write the stories about the antagonists of my life, knowing that if I'll tell the story from their point of view, I'll have to humanize them. There's moments in this story where you take the world that you've constructed and you turn it on its head. The moment when, when Yed decides he's gonna pause and go back and rewind. I wonder if that's a kind of characteristic thing that you look for as well. I think this has to do with my biography. I'm a child of two Holocaust survivors. And basically, I think that one of the things that you, I got as a lesson, even if it wasn't a conscious lesson, 
that they told me that the life seemed to be heading into one direction. And then one day, poof, you know, something else happened. So I think that since young age, I'm kind of aware of this possibility that everything could turn, that everything could blow up in my face. And when I go to places, they say, okay, what could go wrong? If the table will turn into a giant frog, I think I run to the toilet and lock the door twice, you know? So when you think this way, you try to, to predict the unpredictable. And that makes your mind all the time kind of uh, takes routes that are not the usual routes. That's something that happens within the writing of the story. The story doesn't start from that moment of flip. No, no, It's, no. It happens while you're going along. I would say it's 90% true that when I write my stories, I don't know what's going to happen. I can give you an example. I have a story in my latest collection, and it's a story about a person who sees somebody who's about to jump from a roof of a building. And that person is determined to save the life of the potential suicider. And he says to the guy, wait for me, I want to talk to you. And he runs up the stairs. Basically, it's two paragraphs when he runs up the stairs. And there is something about me. When I write a story, I also live it. So I'm writing, he's running down the stairs. A neighbor opens the door. He said, close the door. His baby is crying, you know, all this stuff. And when I do it, the same way that you're running, I say, okay, when I get to the top, what argument will I give this guy? And I'm thinking of an argument while I write this. And I find some kind of an angle. And then he opens the door and he sees that the guy had already jumped. So I know it sounds ridiculous because I wrote that the guy had already jumped, but I think that the part of me being with the character, this unconscious part that decided that the guy on the roof is not going to survive, were not in sync. I was genuinely thinking that there is a chance to save the guy. And I think that for me, if I'm able to write this way, I think it's the best possible thing. Because let's say you write a story and in the story, somebody robs you. And you know that after this robbery, you go and meet your wife and you're going to have a cup of tea. When he aims the pistol at you in the story, it will be difficult to write something that is genuinely afraid. So when I write something, I always have this kind of very vague notion of what's going to happen. And I also feel that, you know, that I don't have a hold of it. Oh, you know, I think that they're going to fight. Oh, my God, he killed her. I, I thought they were just going to argue, you know. So whenever you do that, it opens a new path. And I think that it's the difference between going to an adventure with your reader and retelling your reader an adventure that you already had. I can tell you great stories from Australia. I know already what's going to happen in the end. And you all know already that no wild animal had eaten me. But it's different. Then if I say to you, let's go to a jungle in Africa and see what's happening. Oh, my God. I'm surprised with the reader. In your memoir, Seven Good Years, you suggest the writer is just another sinner standing at the gate. There's a somewhat sharper awareness and uses slightly more precise language to describe the inconceivable reality of our world. Is that what you're trying to get to with this make it up as you go along kind of way, this inconceivable reality? Yeah, it's like I feel that me and, my, and the readers, we're like, Before we begin to read the story, we're basically falling from a skyscraper, you know, going down. We don't know when we're going to hit the ground. And I feel that there is something about me that while falling, I'm kind of reporting. Oh, the wind, wind is great. Ah, but I want to see my wife again, you know. 
some of your stories in this most recent collection, Fly Already, use your ability to imagine something surreal, something like a frog watching CNN or a father who turns into a rabbit. And others use technology, a simulation of a neighbour or a service that provides clones. I'm wondering if surrealism and technology play a similar kind of role, if it's like Arthur C. Clarke, that advanced technology is much the same as surrealism. Technology can function very well as a metaphor. Many of the sci-fi books that I read and that uh, had influenced me or that I liked, they were not talking about uh, impossible technology. They were talking about uh, mankind. Even in the story here, the story is about a simulation, but it's not about a simulation. It's about uh, what we want our life to look like, what we look in our partners. Do we see control in our relationship or actually we, we want our relationship to be not in control? All those kind of issues, I think that they can be amplified through technology. Lord of the Fly, it's not uh, lost with children. It's basically a story that puts a setting that helps you explore something about children's wildness. You know, I'm saying in that sense, I think that when I write about technology, technology never interests me. It just interests me the way that we use it. I think that when you look at uh, social media, I can't help thinking about gunpowder. Gunpowder existed in China for centuries. They used it for fireworks. And then when Europeans came, they say, oh, we can shoot each other and kill each other. And the Chinese said, oh, my God, we never thought about that. Yeah, it's so much more pragmatic than fireworks. It's the same technology meeting a different state of mind became a totally different thing. This is the feeling that, that I have all the time. That we're not talking about a word. We're talking about our perception of the word. And the, every object that is there, every technological breakthrough is basically just another Rorschach stain that will help us understand more our faults and qualities. And so in your fiction, it serves much the same role as the surreal. It allows you to investigate something that's going on in your characters, in how we feel. Yeah, yeah you know, it's funny because uh, I was supposed to be an engineer. I was mo always more interested in maths and physics than studying literature. I was interested in reading, but I wasn't interested in studying literature. So I think that I always had this kind of wish to figure the world out. And at some stage, I realized that I can't figure it out. And that same technology that I once wanted to cling to, to understand reality, it became a tool to show my confusion. Through it, I could basically say, hey, look, if we had all those amazing technology, would we be saved from ourselves? I think that one of the themes that returns in a few of my stories is that of a goldfish that grants you wish. And I think that my connection to this situation, very much like technology, is that if I had a goldfish who would grant me free wishes, I would have to confront the fact that I don't know what the hell I want for my life. Many times it happens to people who want to become wealthy. And when they're wealthy, they understand that their money is just energy that can bring them something. But if they don't want anything or need anything, then... This energy cannot be used. When you get these kind of moments of perspective shift in your stories, the moment when the reader discovers that actually the story isn't going where he, he or she thought it was going to go, it's going somewhere else. Is that a very 21st century moment? The moment when you realise you're not really in control of your life? I'm old enough to say that the end of the 20th century wasn't that true either. But, but I think that what really happened was that when I began writing, I was very young. 
I was uh, 19 in my compulsory army service in Israel. And I wrote a lot about this, this idea that I don't understand the word. And I think that as I grew up, I kind of had a better grasp of the word all the time. I understood the word better. And at the same time, it seemed as if the word made less sense. So if in the beginning there were things that had to do with my age or my position, I was able to overcome them. But by the time I got there, then basically life it just became more kind of obscure for some reason, you know? So it got away from you again. Yeah. So, so, you know, it's like when you end a relationship and you say, you know, it's not you, it's me. In the past, it was probably me. Now I think it's the word, but you know, I, I'm not blaming anyone. You know, it's the two of us. It, our relationship is just not working. <laughs> I mean, it's that inability to grasp the world around you because the world is so complicated, the political, economic, ecological crises that we're surrounded with. Is that a very 21st century feeling that you're trying to grapple with in your story? My sensation is not that we have like too much information. My sensation is that people stopped being interested in information. I think that, you know, when I see today news or even when I see a Netflix series, more than it says you're going to know something that you didn't know before that, it promises you that you'll feel a certain thing. You'll feel cheated. You'll feel scared. You'll feel angry. Usually negative things. They used to give you the news. Now the commentator kind of chose the news for you. We're going to see something horrifying, despicable. And I say, hey, man, you know, it's a guy who killed his family. You don't have to say to me it's horrifying. I'll get it. But it's this idea that we're just observing emotions. It's like a pornography of sensation. The same way that, you know, when you watch pornography or you watch horror or even when you watch a dumb comedy, you want to have like a certain effect. And today we don't go out to the world to learn. We go out to the world to get the effect that we seek. In your story, Fungus, you suggest that the story in the story, the writer is God. If something bad happens to your protagonist, it's only because you wanted it to. You wanted to watch him wallow in his own blood, which opens up the question of why so many bad things happen to your protagonist. Yeah, I, I think that so many bad things happen to my protagonist, both because I'm very stressful and anxious, so I can easily imagine bad things happening. And also maybe because of some kind of oversensitivity. You know, I think that I can have a... 10 second awkward interaction with the guy in the airport that has to body search me. Like, I don't know, I will sell a joke, he wouldn't get it. And I will make a story out of it because it depresses me so much and it bothers me so much that I have to write a story to get it out of my system. So I think that anxiety and hypersensitivity together, they kind of try to create a healing process. A kind of saying, you know, sometimes when you go with a child and the child is scared of a dog, you say, oh, don't, don't be scared. Let's go slowly. Let's go nice doggy, you know? So many times for me, the process of writing a story is doing that. It's basically life had bitten me or barked at me and I'm basically trying to come back to it, to kind of meet it in a, in some kind of a more softcore kind of turn. Reading your memoir, Seven Good Years, even that is constructed out of vignettes, out of little scenes. What is it about the short form, the short story that really works for you? For me, when I started writing, and I did it in the army, and writing always kind of uh, symbolized to me some kind of ultimate freedom. You are not committed to anything but what your heart wishes. And in that sense, usually when I sit down to write, I don't know what I'm going to write. 
It's like I can be working on a story and every day I'll come to the computer and sit next to it. I write something else and not the story. When you feel that you have no responsibilities when you write, you can't write a novel like that. When I write my stories, it's kind of like those eruptions. You know, I once said that I see my stories like explosions and that I've yet to learn how to explode slowly. I don't want <laughs> to have a, a series of explosions and say, this is my novel. I just... want each sensation you know to exist in, on its own when you write about writing in your stories they always seem to come out quite quickly is that how it works in real life nah it's like you know i think that it's how i would like people to think <laughs> that it goes no really because let's say when i write a first person narrative story my goal is that when people will read the story is that they have the feeling that it was written in the speed of thought and many times actually what i do i overshoot it's like i write a story And then I work on the story so it will feel more spontaneous. It's a little bit like stonewashed jeans. I'm trying to make it feel as if somebody is thinking it now, even though I've written already eight drafts, you know. It's <laughs> cheating, but I think in our line of business, it's allowed. Looking back at Point of No Return, I'm wondering if you ever dream yourself of pausing, of tweaking and starting your own life again. I think that I have a very strange relationship with life. The way that I see life, I never uh, felt in any moment that, that I have a lot of control on it. Kind of like I'm skiing down this mountain and I can avoid hitting a tree or hitting another person. But I can't really stop or I can't do a U-turn or I can't live forever or I can't split to three different entities that together will work as a super organism. I can't do all those kind of things. So I'm just rolling with it. And the moment that I, I really don't feel a total control of it, I think that I don't look at life the way that you look at an apartment or your car or a commodity. You say, oh, my life is good. Oh, I would like to have better life. You know, it would be so nice if my life would have a balcony, you know? So <laughs> it's really, it's just this kind of feeling of, oh, And amazement, this kind of idea, I don't know if I think of a metaphor, it's about of this guy who runs and runs and runs while a lot of things fall from the sky, knives, piano, rocks, and he runs and runs and runs and is able to dodge them or sometimes they just hit his shoulder. And sometimes in a the moment then he sees a bird flying or a butterfly or a sunset and he stops for a moment and then say, oh, I better move because something's going to fall on me. And that's it, you know, so to say, oh, I would rather dodge a little less and have nicer butterflies, you know, in those moments in which I'm not bleeding, you know. I don't even think this way. I'm just saying this is life. Like, I feel kind of lucky to be invited to something that is so exciting, you know. I don't know if it will be good enough uh, to get another season, you know. But uh, <laughs> I'm watching. I'm still watching. <laughs> And we'll keep watching too. That was Edgar Kerrett. To read Point of No Return and all these marvellous stories, just search for Fictionable or head straight to fictionable.world on your mobile, tablet, laptop or internet-enabled fridge. For £20, you'll get a year's worth of brand new exclusive short stories and graphic fiction. Look for subscribe in the handy menu on the right-hand side. As well as unlimited access to our ever-expanding archive of stories from writers such as Ali Smith, Yan Yanker and Lizzie Stewart. Thanks to Edgar Kerrett, Jessica Cohen, Lucy Caldwell, Michael Doncor, Adora Raji and Serena Catt. 
We'll be posting Adora's recipe for Oha Soup on Twitter, on Instagram, and on our Forward Thinking Mastodon account. We'd love to hear what you make of our podcasts, blogs, and all our stories, so add us on socials or drop us a line old school via email on info at fictionable.world. That's all for this time. So from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Esther Pokujeni, thanks for listening, and goodbye. 